Open Source is an incredibly social art. Open Source is innovation. Like Open Source is enabling. Open Source is community. And open Source is weird. Open Source is incredibly important. Open Source is hard. Open Source is engaging. Open Source is collaboration. Open source is like running the show. Open source is ubiquitous. Open Source is, well, my life. <laughs> and open Source is not free. Hello, my name is Ildiko. And I'm Phil. And this is the My Open Source Experience podcast, where Phil and I will talk to open source veterans, newbies, their managers, and just really anybody who is either already involved in the open source ecosystem or would like to. This podcast will be all about the individuals, their voices, and their experiences that they've been through ever since they started to think about open source or getting involved in open source. Yes, we'll show the various different types of open source communities that are out there, some pluses and minuses, and how to navigate them. Before we dive in, let me give you some important reminders. People on the podcast participate as individuals. They do not represent any company or organization. All the thoughts and opinions are theirs. People share their stories and experiences, the way how they went through them and how they remember them and reflect how those experiences affected their lives, influenced their decisions and just changed maybe their careers or lives back then or ever since. Welcome to the My Open Source Experience podcast. In this episode, Finn and I are talking to Alex Scammon, and we have a very interesting topic for you today, which is money in open source. So um, this is probably not the first thing that comes to your mind when we are talking about experiences and open source. So what we are really covering here today is the value of open source. But how do you translate that value into numbers like investment, return on investment, maintenance costs, or maintenance savings, or the risks of not getting involved in communities of projects that you are heavily relying on? Enjoy the show. Alex, please introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? What's your background? And what, if anything, does it have to do with open source? Yeah, thank you. Uh, nice to be here. Uh, I'm Alex Scammon, and I currently run a large and ungainly open source program office for G Research. And uh, I'll talk more about that, I'm sure, at length in this uh, podcast. But my background, just prior to working for G Research, was working at Rackspace, which uh, has obvious connections to the Open Infra and OpenStack universes. And before that, I was at Yahoo. And before that, I was at a, a string of... Uh, weird startups building sometimes CRMs for used car dealerships and other unsavory kinds of things like that. But, uh, you know, so I've, I've had a, a journey of my own through, through the technosphere. Um, I wonder that you said that currently you're, um, you're working close connection to open source and you were mentioning, you know, opening for communities and OpenStack. Um, 
Can you tell, do you remember what, what, what's your first memory of open source? Like, do you remember when you learned about it, how you get in touch with it? I don't remember uh, my learning about it. It well, that might have been way, way back when I first heard about Linux from some way more into computers geek friend of mine. Um, and I thought it was kind of odd and cute at the time. Years later, I think I was at Yahoo and we were using Selenium to do uh, testing. And I wanted to make a contribution there and did, but I really didn't understand what it was all about, how to interact with the community, the community uh, poo-pooed my suggestion. I was very upset uh, and I didn't come back to open source for a long time because of my first experience was was uh, sort of shameful from my perspective and, um, you know, not the, the community was actually fine. It was just my ego was uh, bruised. So, um, <laughs> you know, that, that was my first experience. Um, were they kind? Were they kind in their feedback and you just took it poorly or were they pretty blessed? I, I, th I think they were probably kind. They were probably saying like, uh, why do you want to do this? Sort of like hinting like, you really don't understand what you're doing here, do you? But I think they were kind, but because uh, that was probably true at the time that I didn't understand what I was, uh, the patch that I was making worked for me, but probably didn't work for everyone else. Um, and it was short-sighted. And they were, they were probably politely pointing that out. It's true. Uh, but at the time I didn't, see it that way and so i i thought it was it was all a waste of time and it was a couple of years before i came back to it and was like oh okay i see how this all works now um yeah that was my first uh entry into it what what guided you back to to open source uh was there was there a project at the company where you worked at that time was that openstack that that brought you back was that your idea or were you forced into it no no bit? uh I came back to it mostly through OpenStack and working at Rackspace. You know, Yahoo had engaged in open source um, initiatives in a whole bunch of places, but that's not where I was particularly. Um, and, uh, you know, I wasn't working on Hadoop or, or something clear and obvious like that at Yahoo. Uh, but when I got to Rackspace, you know, part of the reason why I joined Rackspace was because they were building the open cloud. And that sounded appealing to me. The 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 thought that the little guy was gonna build this thing for the world and we were gonna take down the giants. And um that story appealed to me. And uh and you know, a lot of the work that we did at Rackspace was by necessity had to engage the community. Um as part of that role, we also, one of the engineering efforts that I uh, took on was this open source time series database that, that we had created um, that also gave me some lessons and learnings about what not to do really in the open source community. This was one of those situations where we had built a very cool thing and we're very proud of ourselves and open sourced it. And 
the feeling was sort of, if you build it, they will come. And nobody came. And we didn't really make the experience of, of joining uh, that project and doing development on that project, uh, first class developer experience. And uh, we didn't go out and try and find allies, do any of the hard social work that is ne needed to build a community. And as a result, the, the code's still out there, I'm sure, um, but nobody has used it ever really except Rackspace. So um, that was a good lesson uh, for open source in many ways as well. Like the importance of how to advocate for your project just beyond all oh, the code will speak for itself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I would like that to be true. And I think a lot of engineers would love that to be true as well, just because what we're generally interested in is mucking around in the code. And one of the reasons why a lot of engineers are engineers is because they they don't want to do all the social work that a lot of other people do want to do. Uh, all the people who do marketing or HR or things that are directly related to humans, there's a sense with a lot of engineers that they, they want to firewall themselves off from that work. And the dilemma, of course, is that open source is a lot about people. And yeah, yeah, at the end of the day, you have to start interacting with people if you want to get the job done. Um, so yeah, it, again, it was a it was a very big learning lesson in like, oh, we can't just do code. We've got to do all of these other bits to make it work. So and the, the strange thing about open source is that it's it's difficult to find a marketing person and certainly an HR person that can do the work that's needed, right? Because it's an engineer to engineer kind of engagement. That's you're at that level. So it's, it's hard to find anybody else. So it takes a special kind of developer. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, it's not to say that every developer has to be incredibly social and out there and going to parties or whatever. A lot of this work happens in IRC with, without any, vision or visuals of the other person that you're working with. Um, we do a lot of work that right now with like the color community and uh, I can think of it has a very strong IRC process. And I had somebody on that project for years, never knew any of the faces of the people that he was working with. And that's, that's fine. Like, and that's how lots of engineers prefer to interact. So it's not to say that like you have to be gregarious and out there in the world, but um, you're right. It does it does still take a certain kind of developer to be willing and able to to engage when you get to the point of like marketing efforts and standing on stage and willing to talk about your stuff at a conference. Um, yeah, it does. It does take multiple skills at that point. Yeah, we we mentioned it before that a lot of engineers, developers happen to be introverts, and mm -hmm. um, I'm one of the examples. And it takes a lot of effort and energy to get get out of you know 
of the dark little room where you're sitting and, uh, you know, stand in front of people. So I, I think that we will probably have at least one episode that will focus on how to make this work if you're an introvert, because I'm sure that a lot of us have a lot of stories in terms of I'm doing all kinds of things that I never expected or wanted to do. <laughs> and I, I look forward to that, that episode. Is everyone with their video cameras off? And uh, yeah, it'll be great. (laughs) Maybe it will be just, you know, like the, as opposed to the, uh, the camera views of everybody's face, we will just type in the chat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, I love it. Okay. So uh, you had the first experience of trying to do something and then it didn't work out. And then you kind of had almost the opposite experience of you, if if you were part of the team who were creating that project, then you probably had, you know, the whole control of what's happening and, and what to do. Um, did you also have kind of the experience in between? So kind of being able to use all the things that you learned from those two very uh, different experiences. The project that I run right now, the the department, the team that I run right now is sort of a full court press of all of the things, all of that sort of spectrum. Uh, And so to give some background on on what I'm doing right now, the OSPO that I run is rather large, maybe 30 plus engineers, that all contribute to upstream projects, by and large, not our own projects that we have built. And uh, we don't stand to to sell any of these products or get any money directly from the from these products. We don't we don't sell things like that. So I should give a little background on G Research, which is a, a quantitative research firm which essentially takes these, tools, these uh, open source data science, machine learning, AI tools, and applies them to the markets and tries to predict where the market's going to go and therefore is able to make money. And so so G Research has the money making bit down. And to do that, they use a lot of open source tools. My team is this translation layer this uh the service organization for the company who that when the company needs a feature or a bug fixed or support around any of the open source ecosystems that it uses it has a place to go to get that service and support and and feature requests done and uh and so the we we started rather small with sort of a couple of people focusing on infrastructural projects. OpenStack was one of them and have broadened over the past five years to engage, as I say, all sorts of different tools in the data science machine learning uh, ecosystem. So, uh, and there are a few things that we have open sourced ourselves. Uh, there's a one project that's in the CNCF now that we, we gave to the CNCF called Armada. There's another one called Fast Track ML, which I think is headed towards the uh, AI uh, Linux Foundation uh, Foundation. And uh, but by and large, we're actually just contributing to upstream projects. Uh, 
OpenStack is one of them, Kubernetes is another one, but Spark and um, Arrow and Pandas and like all the pieces of data science today, which, and most of it is open source. And then also the infrastructure to support those workloads um, with OpenStack and Kubernetes, as you might expect. All of those pieces are things that my large ungainly team will contribute to outside of our walls. So that I think that starts to get to what you were asking about. Um, you know, it's not just things that we have done uh, and we are now starting to engage those things successfully and not just uh, in my first experience being shamed and walking away with my tails be tail between my legs. We, <laughs> we now know how to engage the community. We, we do it politely. We we don't come with big, huge, big bang pull requests. We make our presence known and and do things to curry goodwill and listen to the community and don't try and force our opinions on the community. Like all the things that uh, we think of as being good citizens, we we know how to do that now. Uh, so it's, it's almost like I took all of the missteps of my youth and now have <laughs> summed it up into an actual uh, positive force for the company and for all of these other projects that, that we engage with. Would it be fair to say that um, you act as that um, buffer between the developers that are inside of G Research that are just working on the algorithms to do the quant analysis who need that feature don't know how to describe it, don't know how to engage with that community. You you provide that you provide that grease, if if for lack of a better term, to create a frictionless environment where you get those features in. You can describe what you need in community terms. Have you have you, have you had those kind of situations? We have. I'm uh, rushing to try and remember a really good example of that. Um, for for sure, that happens. Being the the grease, the buffer between the internal organization and the external organization. A lot of OSPOs are created to enable the internal developers, first and foremost, to interface with open source themselves. Um, and when I got to G Research, I realized I had to do it slightly differently. G Research was a very, very insular and security conscious company that is air-gapped and has some real uh, self-imposed challenges to working with open source. And the, the culture there was not one where I could have just walked in five years ago and said, hey, y'all, I'm here. We're all going to be open source engineers now. I, they they would have just thrown me out the window. So we developed a, a different strategy, one where we did build this buffer, as you, as you called it, uh, one where there was a service organization that people could come to and we could start building a good experience around open source. Eventually, we've been able to start engaging internal engineers to, to be able to contribute back out to open source, much like traditional OSPOs try and engage internal engineers. But that wasn't where we had to start. And as a result, we have this, this larger team that is that Greece um, as, as you described it aptly. Um. 
Can you tell a little bit about your experience and where the comment is coming from that it's so hard to talk about money when it comes to open source? Yeah. This, um, well, I started a recent experience that I had at uh, an open source conference. It was, I think, one of the Finos conferences where it's all lots of finance people running around and talking about open source software. And I was interested in the OSPO track. And so I think I was listening to a bunch of OSPOs there. And my critique of a lot of what I was hearing was that they weren't talking about the money. And it was distressing to me because we were at the finance open source <laughs> conference. Like if, if there was any place where people should know how to talk about money and open source, it was here. And I asked a couple of questions to people and it, it wasn't on people's minds and uh, or they couldn't really articulate how they valued in monetary terms their OSPO efforts. And I, as I say, I was distressed. Um, and then we hit this period, uh, maybe the last year or so, where we've seen a number of OSPOs um, sort of famous OSPOs come under the gun and uh, lose funding. And I fear that it's because we in the open source ecosystem aren't yet good enough about talking about our value, which is equally distressing to me because we can all look around and see that open source is like running the show. So surely, surely we should be able to express that open source is valuable. So like that doesn't seem to be the problem. I think it's just our ability to communicate it because it's difficult. It's tricky to connect an, uh, the work that we do in open source to actual business value. And th that's my theory, at least. Um, I don't think that all these clever people at the at a Finos conference would be avoiding it if it was easy. Um, the backdrop, so uh, now I'll take a step back and refer to my experience at Rackspace briefly, which, as I said, part of my role was leading a, an open source project, uh, but it was part of a bigger monitoring and metrics um, platform that we had developed and that I was running. And at some point, we we just became seen as a cost center. And I learned the difficulties of being seen as a cost center in a, a big company. And, and that, that can be fine, but at Rackspace, I, I didn't have any tools at that exact point to communicate our value. And I had to run around and and build that business case from the ground up. Um, and really that taught me that if I'm going to be running another cost center again, then I need to really do that work from the beginning. So when I joined G-Research to do this open source program office, I could see very plainly from the beginning that this could be seen as a big cost center. And from the beginning, I was always very conscious that I needed to be communicating exactly why we were doing what we were doing. And if possible, equating that to money because G Research is a financial tech company. 
I for sure know they care about money. So like it was incumbent upon me from the beginning. And I knew this from my experience just previously at, at Rackspace. And so we started with, with sort of good fundamentals around, hey, why are we doing what we're doing? This is why we're doing what we're doing. And this is exactly why, how much we're getting from it. Um, so those, those are the sort of the two pieces of context and background that, that I'll start this part of the conversation off with. And I think this is a fascinating part of the conversation. I, I'm personally dying to know how you did get in the door of G research and why they did it an insular, very close, tight knit group. What pain were they feeling that was so intense that it's all right, fine. We'll go create an OSPO to fix this is, is the first question. Um, the, the pain, um, or the anticipated pain was that because they were so insular, they were often doing a terrible thing, which is taking open source software and forking it internally. And then you bear the operational burden of uh, patching the, the thing every time the new release in the open source world comes out. And, and the reason why the company was seeing fit to build an open source team was that uh, the VP of engineering was somebody who came from Rackspace and who had seen this exact same anti-pattern evolve in Rackspace and knew just how painful it could be. And so to head that off at the pass, uh, he had joined uh, G Research maybe a, a year prior. And to head that off at the pass, he reached out, in fact, well, there's a long story about that, but we connected and uh, and he proposed this thing and uh, I made a, a proposal about how it would all work to the company and um, it was approved. And so we started this, this journey. Um, yeah, if you want like a, a half hour aside, we can talk about how I ran into him randomly on the streets in London on the busiest day in the summer. Uh, and but that's a long story. Uh, it's the the other question would be so talk a little bit about what 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 language did you use? How do you describe that monetary value? Um, yeah, uh, we generally talk about it in sort of a spectrum from very clear and obvious financial. Uh, reward or, or savings to very, very nebulous reward or savings. Um, the, and there's a, there's a wide spectrum in between, but on the very clear and obvious, there are, there have been uh, licenses that we've been paying for on projects that we would rather not be using things that all are old and archaic. We, we can't get the attention of the developers. They're not providing support for us any longer and there's an open source alternative that if only it had a few more features we could just move to and save ourselves the license costs those are those are some very very easy and and clear things to communicate to a um, finance department we're going to save you half a million dollars sound good okay i'm going to put $250,000 worth of engineering effort on it for a year. And then we're going to save the cut. Like that's really clear on the other end of the spectrum. There are all the sort of 
intangibles around company profile and goodwill in the community and and the ability to hire um, uh, attrition rates and things like that. Uh, and then there's there are things in the middle like developer productivity when we solve a problem that improves our build times by 10 minutes how many builds are the engineers doing over the course of a year and you can kind of estimate that stuff and and come up with a round number of like all right we could estimate this at savings of 400 grand a year tell you what we're just going to cut that in half and say 200 grand we saved do some math like that but we know that it's non-zero uh, we know that we have some of the parameters around it and so we do that kind of fuzzy math um, and at the other end of the spectrum I mentioned talent and, and attrition there are numbers that you can get out around that you, we work with our uh, talent acquisition and marketing teams to uh, to say look it We've improved, we know, uh, our ability to hire. It has become easier because we've been talking about our open source work. We can point to the open source work as uh, examples of the work that we do inside that we normally can't talk about, but we can talk about the open source stuff. And it's been easier to hire, even if it has shaved this much time off of um, the, uh, the time to hire. That, that time to hire, we can equate in terms of the, the talent acquisitions costs, uh, the, te the team costs, and again, give us some sort of conservative number on that. And then you add up this spectrum of very direct costs to very indirect costs. And uh, in my experience so far, it always comes out to way, way more than the cost of doing business for your team. Um, but it, it takes a, a lot of work actually to go through each one of your projects to identify the things that have uh, made the uh, made the company money or saved the company uh, money and do some math that people can nod their heads to, add the whole thing up and get buy-in that, yeah, this really happened, that you did actually affect all of that. Um, and that has to that has to permeate from the engineering throughout the engineering teams that you're working with all the way up to, in our case, the board of directors of the company. So um, a lot of the work that I do is making sure that that is communicated and that is understood. And uh, because we've been successful at that, we've grown from three people to 30 or so. So I want to ask a question and I, Avian recently did a study and um, uh, a journalist recently wrote an article on it comparing like Amazon, Microsoft, and a few other companies talking about um, how many people they have in, in open source working directly in open source and kind of focused on open source. Um, and that number ended up being somewhere between um, one and 5% of their overall development workforce. Mm -hmm. um, so if, and, and so the question is, is, is one of developers. So you've got roughly 30 folks focused on the upstream work. Mm -hmm. Can you venture what percentage that is to the overall developer team? Yeah, maybe it's, 
three or four percent. Um, am I doing my math right? Uh, maybe as much as well. If we start including the um, the people inside who are also engaged in uh, upstream collaboration, it's probably more like five percent. Um, because okay. to be clear, it's not just my team. We have been successful. No, 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 no. I understand. And and so, and yeah. when and and. and I mean, it's it's a common model in Linux, and I, I think mm -hmm. I've I've been finding it to be true across many other projects. Where mm -hmm. you know you've got folks that are dedicated to doing the proprietary code, period, and mm -hmm. then you've got the folks like your team who are working just in the upstream, and yeah. then you've got folks in the middle that are kind of working mostly on the proprietary stuff. But as you say, they work pushing stuff upstream with help from the grease or from those that are that are actively up upstream in the community. So. It's like these three buckets and the one in the middle kind of pivots, right? Whichever way they yeah. need to go to, to be most effective for the overall goal of the company. Yeah. Um, so when I look at that smallest bucket, the one dedicated to the upstream, it's like I said, it's, it's been somewhere in that, in that two to five percentage range. And so I was just curious if those numbers hold in your organization or if you've got a different ratio, because yours is a, I've, I mean, I've not looked at a quant company before. You're obviously very software focused. Right. I mean, you've got that. You've got the data analysts, and you've got the guys writing the algorithms, and I figure that's pretty much it. Yeah. The two fundamental, two fundamental work groups. Yeah, uh, and you know, at GB Search, that so there is this cadre of quants who are writing the algorithms and being very clever, but there's four or five times that amount of people who are providing the infrastructure and the machinery in which to place those very clever algorithms and do things. So it's it's quite a large organization, quite a large engineering organization, I should say, um, at the end of the day, to support those uh, very clever mathematician quanti brains. Um, and it's interesting to hear that you, uh, your, uh, your percentage is about somewhere between two to five percent that reassures me that I might be doing it right. Um, so that's cool. We, you, you mentioned developers and engineers, but we also talked about at the beginning-ish of the episode that there's much more than just development. Do you have people, you know, yes. doing marketing stuff, technical writing, and did you, did you factor them in as well into that percentage? Thank you for bringing that back around. Uh, I meant to mention it up front, but Yes, when we built the team out, one of the first roles that I had for was uh, uh, director of community and developer um, relations. Um, and that is still the hardest bit of the work, to be honest. And in fairness, we probably have too small of a team over there. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, but, but yes, we have... Uh, Katarina, who runs the that whole department, she has a group of people who um, support that function, um, uh, both from doing actual sort of developer relations um, internally and externally, and then a number of tech writers and a number of people who help us build uh, little GitHub websites for our um for our projects and support community like there are all sorts of little tiny pieces of uh, development that need to happen as part of that developer relations process um it's a team that works very very closely with marketing uh with our talent team inside g research but also uh, the the engineering teams inside 
GB search. Like they have to be plugged into what's happening on the ground. If we want to write about things, for example, we need to know what's going on. And then there's a huge world of uh, open source that we need to connect to and build relationships with. And that's where a lot of that team, um, the, the, where the role really, really comes into focus and really shines because uh, it's all the stuff that you forget to do as an engineer when you're just focused on getting your tasks done. It's sending emails back to people, setting up meetings, having conversations, going to conferences and just meeting people and making those connections. And, um, you know, it sometimes it can feel trivial, as I say, like just meeting a person, like what's that going to do? But I can't tell you the number of times that those things have turned into wonderful engineering projects that have brought the company value. So it like, it, it's weird and silly, but it somehow transpires that all this social activity that we engage in actually does equate to meaningful engineering productivity at the end of the day. Um, so back to how do you how do you sell that um, as a cost center? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I think that's why it remains one of the smaller teams of my. Uh, on my team is because I'm wary of making that um, uh, sort of too big and a target for what are you all doing here? Because it is harder to equate the money that that, that generates uh, just because it's more on the ethereal end of that spectrum that I was talking about. It's you know, talent acquisition and and um, raising the profile of G Research so that people have heard of us at all. And we know that that is improving our ability to hire, but how much is that worth? Uh, the Maybe what I was just saying about conversations that we have in the wild end up really impacting the company. Well, maybe that's true, but how much of that eventual work do you attribute to the initial conversation, right? Is it it's harder? Yeah. 1%? Is it 50%? Like 100%? It wouldn't have happened had we not been in that room, but we were. And so it happened. But the engineer actually did the work and put it together. So isn't it that person's work that did it? And and so it's, you're right. It, it's, I worry about that that chunk of the, the team and how to express the the positive effects there um one of the things that we've been working on recently is trying to um create or formulate larger uh, initiatives around our outreach uh for a while it, the initiatives the work that we were doing felt very dispersed and uh, not targeted, not something that you could communicate to the board of directors, for example, as this is what we're doing, um, because there are lots of little details in dealing with the with community that it, you just can't come with a litany of little tiny commits uh, to, to the board of directors. Um, so one of the things, for example, that, that we're doing is there's a whole bunch of academic uh, 
connections that we want to make as part of our of G researchers' interest in moving their own research forward. And this is a subject that is key to the board of directors' vision for the company. And so, so we we can see that and and that's the kind of work that is social. We have to be out there connecting with academic um institutions and professors and grad students and their work and and so trying to connect that kind of work even though there's lots of little details in that work summing it up as like a this is the academic mm, connections proposal initiative thing it sounds silly but because we know that there's focus and therefore dollars behind that idea at a board level you know, just trying to make sure that we're connecting that work that we do already with the work that they're interested in doing and and making it clear that that, that we're working towards their their aims like um when it comes to the open source ecosystem it's one thing that that your company is um succeeding and doing all the right things but others in the ecosystem have to be able to succeed as well for the whole thing to work. Mm -hmm. um, there are more and more OSPOs popping up. I've seen you around in conferences um, as well. So I assume that you also keep in touch with other people in other OSPOs. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any experience in terms of like talking about the struggles of how to justify the value of both the OSPO as well as people working upstream, um, starting the conversations around at some point, we all just have to talk about money. And when it comes to money here, we are really talking about the value of, you know, the open source work, uh, this whole mainstream software development phenomenon that's happening these days. Uh, do you have experience with that? Experience with like helping people start the conversation with their companies around it? Yes, and just talking to other people in other OSPOs and, and sharing this experience of this is how we are justifying our value and worth of this organization within our company and what others are doing in the in the same uh, space. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, over the last year, I've been on a mission to kind of proselytize what we've been doing in our OSPO and just trying to share that this is a model that has been working for us, hoping that other OSPOs can take something useful away from how we talk about it, how we justify the value, how we present the value to the company. Um, you know, and that's the premise for why we started talking was that I, I really wanted to talk about this aspect with more and more people. As I said at some point earlier, there's so much value in open source, it uh, pains me that we don't talk about it more directly, more often. And so I've, as I say, I'm just being on a kick to try and help people start that conversation to think about the real world value that they are bringing to their companies, because I, I can only imagine it's huge. And they just might not be speaking about it yet. So... Um, yeah, that's why we're why I'm here. It's why I'm headed to the Open Source Summit to 
find more of those people and to bore them to tears with my financial open source ideas and uh yeah that kind of a thing are people mostly mostly receptive uh yes um well there've been a, a a couple of places where um i was interested to find the the value that companies saw in open source was different from the uh, where we are uh, notably i was talking with don foster at vmware and she was saying that they they focus on innovation as the driver for their open source initiatives and uh, as opposed to like me trying to equate it directly to money as as soon as i can um and i thought that was really valuable too they see the value in that at some level they can equate that value of innovation to the eventual products that they create so that they see the value in a, a different way but at least they're equating what they're doing to real world value at, at some level however they get to it it uh, it's fine by me um but i'm i'm just pleased that they they do it and they have a slightly different model than than us um so mostly receptive um i think actually more than receptive that the last open source summit there were lots of people desirous of the information of how do we justify what we're doing because of that that point there was a, a lot of pressure on a lot of ospos to justify what they're doing and um so yeah more than just receptive i think uh yeah being pulled into conversations around that curious whether i mean is your experience like mine I, I, are you seeing a lot of people who are trying to figure out how to communicate the value of what they're doing i've personally found that it's a never ending job <laughs> and yeah. never usually because again i've 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 got experience both with small startups as well as uh, large organizations and certainly in large organizations, um, you know, you get everybody educated and everybody's good and then management shuffles. And so then you have to start the educational process again because it's a very small percentage that understand and you have those conversations and they always come in with a preconceived notion of, well, how do you make money on open source? It's almost always the opening statement. And if you don't make money, you save money this is how you save money so yeah uh that's a really good point uh, we've seen in a couple of places where management at the top has changed and all of a sudden the stance on open source has changed the advocate for the open source program office has left and uh, yeah and the 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 open source program office is left at sea not not being able to justify what they're doing and I and that's exactly the place where I'm, I'd like to make sure that we all, as open source program officers, are thinking about insulating ourselves or ensuring that more of the company understands what we do, not just the single advocate at the top. Um, to, you know, and that goes for not just OSPOs, but whatever you're doing, it's better to have more advocates than just one. Um, so. Yeah, I've seen that in a number of places. What what I've seen in the past is well, one one example of the uh, 
the C-level management saying that, yes, the company is doing open source, open source is great. They are saying all the right things. And then you have the engineers on the bottom level who are like, oh, yeah, I'm so happy. I want to work on open source stuff. And now Mm. I can mostly somewhat and then you get the middle layer management who gets the customer first the product has to make Mm. it out of the door and that's where the whole thing just breaks Mm. um because figuring out how to do open source as part of product development i think that is still a knot that's being cracked um some companies are doing better at figuring out how to navigate uh things and there are others who are just who just feel overwhelmed. And I also heard from from various people and companies that, oh yeah, we want to do open source, but we also have our product strategy and timeline and we have no idea how to do it. And they don't know where to start. They don't know how to start. And you can give them the textbook in terms of this is open source. This is how you build credibility in the community. Uh, mm-hmm. This is how you make all take all those steps. But when it comes to how to fit all those into their particular timeline situation process, that's just really not trivial. So when yeah. it comes to the um, the value and justifying, what I've seen as a big struggle is how to find that value and balance in terms of justifying the the concrete upstream work. Yeah. Like how to figure that equation out. Yeah, it's good. I mean, that, that takes you back to that initial example about the open source product that uh, we built and then they didn't come. Um, because we had roadmap items that were we had to deliver on for the company so even though we'd we'd open source the thing yay (laughs) we didn't have all of the follow-on steps because we just didn't have time uh and you know maybe had we thought it through and actually recognized how much time it was going to require to get successful as an open source product we may not have actually done it ever um but to your point trying to carve out the time and space to allow the engineering team to do those things that make an open source project successful is really hard. Um, You know, there's a couple of approaches to it. Uh, I haven't had to to fight this fight for a while because I've I've been running this slightly different form of open source program office thing. But, um, you know, it in a world where you want to sell that product, it can be a lot about the marketing value in building that community. That if you can make five sales because of the connections you've made through the open source uh, community, that's gonna be huge. If you can get more people, if you can build an on-ramp for people to start using your product, it, it that's another marketing play like you can you can start to build it into the actual product roadmap not just because it's like a good thing to do but because it's going to help the product those are the kinds of conversations that you need to have if if you're trying to build uh, like open core or, or, or a product an open source product as a 
product and trying to find that time, I find that those are the arguments that you have to start making to give your team that space, that time and space to actually do what's right open source wise. One one other experience that I have that kind of connects to this in a in a different way where where you have the top level management saying that yes, we are doing open source. They decided to have the the project out in the open, but you don't get the the engineers uh on board. Like they are kind of forced to do open source. And mm -hmm. that's another that's yeah. another example of the value challenge because in order for the engineers and developers to be on one hand comfortable in that space and be able to do it efficiently, you have to somehow train both them and the management layer above who are trying to keep everything together. And that's a that's that's another big challenge that I've been seeing, um, especially because more and more companies are just throwing everything out into the open source space because mm. marketing or it's a it's a sales tactic or just because everybody else is doing it and I have to do it too. Yeah. So I I feel like that more and more people and projects are just thrown out there, thrown into the middle of it without ever being told what the thing is in the first place. Yeah, I think you're right. I think even on my uh, OSPO, um, there are a few engineers who uh, I don't think in, understood, to your point, what it meant to really engage open source and that it was just going to be another engineering effort in the back room of some corporate entity that you could do your work and uh you know finish the sprint and go home and and that was the end of it and and it's not it, you're right there it is more than that whether those engineers like it or not and some some engineers don't like it and uh yeah there is a there is a tension there um and it's it's confusing to me because I would look at the opportunity to do open source and get paid for it as like this fun game, this this toy that I've been given that I can play with endlessly. Uh, and but to, you know, I'm I'm not everyone, unfortunately, and uh, there are other people with other uh, perspectives on what they want to do, um, what they're interested in in terms of engineering, and so it's. You're totally right. There is a tension there. Uh, sometimes people have actually decided that that's not what they want to do. Sometimes they haven't been told, to your point, that there is a whole raft of other responsibilities when you you engage in open source. And I, I think that part of it is, in some cases, the lack of education. Like if the person never had open source experience before they don't really know what it is all about for them it's just an overhead like mm. if someone was thrown from a completely proprietary product development workflow into open source for them it's overhead like what can i what can i talk about in the public space they are not comfortable doing that so they end up doing back channel communication and then they have mm. to feed mm. the the summary of that back into the community and that's just one example of overhead mm. for them and uh, a lot of like 
little inconveniences. And I think that that kind of goes back to the investment part of the money conversation, because a mm. company who decides to participate in open source or open source one of their projects and throw their engineers on it, they have to invest in yeah the transition and education. And I don't think that a lot of them do. And I think that that probably also goes back to the having the OSPO, having the community manager and developer relationship person, and hopefully a whole team who can help with that. Well, I, I think the term invest like helps in this financial context. Like uh, you're totally right. A lot of this is investment, and when people don't see the payoff on investment, they uh, they can run away. And if the company doesn't feel like they have the bandwidth for investment, money or time or whatever it is, they won't want to invest. It it's there is a attention there. Absolutely. Um, uh, maybe I'll uh, try this thought on uh, since we're. We're doing financial stuff. I've been thinking about the sort of open source tax, as it were, that that there's some sense that open source is incredibly important and that we should all be paying a tax somewhere to to the open source community to make it viable. That there's all sorts of uh things, GitHub sponsors and Tidelift and all sorts of ways that you can pay a tax to build help build the community. And um you know, that's an investment too. You believe that somewhere down the road that's gonna pay off for you in some uh, indirect way. The The way that we invest with the open source program office is sort of by paying your local taxes. It's, it's like, I want to fix the potholes on my street. I'm gonna pay the tax to fix the potholes on my street. And I know a damn well where my tax dollars are going because I'm fixing the potholes on my street. And um, and I, I'd like people to think about it the, the way that, that we're doing energy research. I'd like to th people to think about that investment in that way, that it's like a super local tax that you're paying. Yeah, it's an investment, but you're fixing your potholes on your damn street. It's not going to go fund some big government entity in the sky. Like, no, no, you're fixing your street because you care about it. And um, in that way, I, I think the investment that you're talking about, uh, people can rationalize it a little easier. Like it's more direct in a lot of ways, so. Can you tell something about yourself to us that has nothing to do with open source and maybe nothing with tech either? I mean, I'm sitting here in my studio, uh, music studio that I run. Uh, and there's a whole wall of keyboards here. My uh, horns are over in the big room out there. Uh, and we teach digital music production. There's a class uh, starting at about an hour in the big room on uh, Logic Pro and starting people uh, on learning that product and how to make music with their laptops and um, yeah, create the, the music that they want. So that's, you know, just because I'm not quite busy enough with the work that I do, 
I also run this this whole professional music studio and uh, education, uh, digital music education place. So uh, I, I hope that counts as something else. It's almost techy, but it's music. Yeah. I think that is pretty cool. Do you also have a band or just? No, I've I've stopped that rubbish. Uh, too many. <laughs> Too many broken hearts over uh, bands breaking up. Uh, it's just too much, too much, LD. I can't take it anymore. So, <laughs> yeah. No, I understand, but um, it sounds like a fun adventure one way or the other. Yeah, no, it really is. Uh, now that the joy is often hearing new students have epiphanies over, uh, you know, a button that they didn't know existed that does everything that they ever wanted you know <laughs> oh my god you mean I, it was that easy the entire time it's it's fun to hear those those epiphanies happen so maybe we could um, use that analogy for a few things in open source too the button exists let me show you where it is yeah. <laughs> the, the big red arrow it's that yeah. way no 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 it's not the fork button yeah it's not <laughs> exactly yeah and with that, that's all, folks. That was our episode for today. I really hope that you enjoyed the show. This season is full of very interesting topics like open source in academia, mentorship programs, how you design and develop infrastructure in a project together with thousands of people, and a really interesting one, money in open source. Stay tuned because the next episode is just around the corner. Um, you know, that, that was my first experience. Oh, I loved it. Uh, Y'all had, had me telling stories that I haven't even thought about. And Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure. Like, I will have coffee with the two of you any day for the rest of my life. Like. <laughs> <laughs>